Welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, Episode 17. This is Adam, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And this is going to be the final episode of 2021. So, sit down, relax, because this is going to be a long one. <laughs> right, well... What's going on recently? Well, it was Christmas, and I spent uh, Christmas still uh, recovering from the Corona-19, or COVID-19, or whatever the fuck it's called now, but You know, that's, that's been fun. Uh, I've had a lot of time to watch a lot of movies, and... Um, and I'm going to talk to you about him today. <laughs> All right, here we go. Waiting for the caffeine to kick into my bloodstream. Um, what's going on? Well, there is. Uh, I saw that there's going to be a new Louis C.K. special coming out titled "Sorry," and I've been a very big Louis C.K. fan for a long time, and um. I've been a defender of Louis C.K. And I don't know if you've seen this, but Louis C.K. had a ad come out during a broadcast of Saturday Night Live, <laughs> which I, I thought was brilliant and hilarious. So the... Um, it was a 30-second TV spot for his uh, his new stand-up special, which you can find at louisck.com. It's not going to be on HBO or Netflix or Comedy Central or anywhere else. It's going to be on his own website, which, you know, that's, that's what his last special was in 2020. Yes, the Louis C.K. special in 2020 was called Sincerely. And it was the best comedy special of 2020. And all of these, uh, and all of these comedians, the one, especially the ones with podcasts, nobody plugged the special at all. Nobody. Even the ones that are Oh, so, uh, allegedly free speech people and they're so irreverent and they're so edgy and they're whatever. nobody had the balls to mention Louis C.K.'s 2020 special and it was in fact the best comedy special of 2020 unless you can think of another one can you think of another one? no you can't it was put out on his website there's a bunch of stuff that he does that's just on his website. And he's um, he's got a great he's got a whole television show on there that's not the show Louis that used to be on FX. It's it's a completely different thing. It's just on his website. It's called Horace and Pete, and it's wonderful. It's filled with really good comedians that you probably never heard of, and Alan Alda is in it, and Steve Buscemi's in it. Really good shit. And um, his new special, Sorry, I'm, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. 
So to all of you comedians out there or just podcast people, shame on you for sitting around all through 2020, not working, by the way, just not working. And nobody mentions Louis C.K.'s special. Shame on you. Because it's very good. But um, I love that he ran an ad during Saturday Night Live for his special. (laughs) Oh, that's fucking great. That's the type of stuff I like to see. I want to see more of that in the future. Hmm. Well, what else did I see? Let's see. I watched a fucking bunch of movies. I'll bring up all the ones I didn't like first, and then I'll get to all the good stuff. (laughs) I don't, again, I don't like to bring up movies that I saw that I hated, or I just didn't like, or I thought it was boring, but a lot of these movies I watched from home, and I did pay money for them. And I do go into these movies wanting to like them. I go in there with open mind. I want to enjoy these movies. I don't really watch anything that I'm going to dislike or (laughs) it's like I try to watch things that I think I'm going to like, but when they are incredibly bad or they're boring or they're not well-made or they're pandering or whatever, like I, I feel that I'm, obligated to bring it up because they have they have done a disservice to me and I deserve to say something about it. Let's see. I'm just going to run through these. I'm not going to really review them thoroughly or anything like that. Not that I review anything very thoroughly anyways, but <laughs> let me just run through a, the list of bad movies I've seen. And by bad, I mean, I generally didn't enjoy the movie itself. It doesn't mean that it's shot bad. It doesn't mean that it has a bad cast. It doesn't mean that it's it's visually looks terrible. It's usually written badly and... And it, or, or it's just generally lame, and I have no desire to watch it a second time. Now, I've watched movies that I was like, I don't know, kind of on the fence about, like, or movies I was like, I didn't really enjoy that movie, but I'm willing to watch it a second time just, just in case there's something I missed. You know what I mean? I did that with The Last Matinee. The Last Matinee, um, I saw that, and I talked about it last episode. The Last Matinee, the first time I watched it, I thought it was um, just a fanboy, pandering, boring, um, just, it suffered from what I call the us problem. Us referring to the film Us, directed by Jordan Peele, in that there's things visually in it and themes that are 
like good and on paper should should work but once it comes time to put all of these little things all these little themes and all these little callbacks and easter eggs and all this little shit together and put it together and then put it on the screen it just falls apart and it's usually usually wastes the act people's acting talents it wastes all the nice visuals and music and things like that um because this this the writing's bad you know it kind of it makes all those things like not strong enough to carry the movie because there's no story to glue all these little things together. So if you've seen the movie us and, um, and it's not even that I think us is a bad movie or anything like that. I just think that like, I feel like it was trying to hit a certain mark and it just didn't hit it. Um, so that's what the last matinee had. It had suffered from the us problem where it had all this like visual callbacks to, you know, uh, uh, horror genres, Italian horror, giallos, things like that. And it was made by someone who's like a fan of those things, but they were too preoccupied with, I don't know, trying to be part of a genre that really only existed in a very specific time period and they're trying to like be part of that but it's like that time period's over with so their efforts kind of fall flat because the story was neglected you know like explaining what the hell is even going on in the movie just is, takes a back seat to visuals and that's incredibly hard to pull off it's like Holy Mountain or El Topo or some, you know, movies like that that are supposed to be visually challenging. But what you're seeing is so strange and so abstract that um, it's sort of amazing. And, um, yeah. <laughs> So what did I see? I saw um, Saint Maud, which I feel kind of suffered from the us problem. Uh, it's incredibly well shot. Um, it's got a lot of good things going for it, but it's just not enough to warrant a second viewing. You know, it's not like the last matinee where I saw it once, and then I was like. Mm. I kind of sat on it a couple of days and I was like, you know, what? I'm going to go back to back and watch that again. And I went back and watched it again and I thought it was a little bit better, but not much better. Um, St. Maud, I have no interest in seeing again. It's basically about this, this nurse who gets fired from a hospital and then goes into home nursing, which is already problematic because the, the main character, you don't really know. You're supposed to sympathize with her, but you know she got fired from 
her nursing job and they're not too specific why, but, uh, <laughs> well, actually they're fairly specific why, uh, <laughs> you, they're it, basically the opening, the uh, opening of the movie has a patient laying in a, in like a hospital examination room covered in blood. And you're like, well, that's, it's not good. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so this nurse who goes into private home nursing um, starts caring for this um, retired, uh, fairly wealthy uh, choreographer who used to own like a dance company and she's dying of cancer. And it's um, the main character as just recently found Jesus. So she basically ends up losing her mind and then somehow she gets possessed by the devil and then the very end of the movie becomes supernatural for some reason and then it just ends. Again, I'm not going to go too deep into this list of movies that I just was not stoked about. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, same on just, it, it just, it, it really lacked story. Like it's, it's one thing to be vague and have a lot of things that are sort of vague, but you know, you have exposition that's sort of like fills in gaps here and there where you can have time and then there's like time for you to sort of process that exposition and apply it towards the rest of the story. Uh, the exorcist three is like that. That's probably one of the, it's probably one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's probably the best horror movie of the nineties. Really? Um, It's one of those movies that doesn't show any of the horror. It's all explained. It's like a police procedural type movie. It's like seven sort of where you don't really see any of the actual uh, killings because it follows a detective who's um, after a serial killer. And it's very much main detective shows up on the scene. Um, the scene is already, you know, taped off and everything from, with other cops. And it's, he shows up, he's like, okay, what happened? And then somebody explains exactly what happened. And it's these very morbid, complex, weird murder scenes. And it's just him processing all this information in his attempts to find this serial killer sort of thing, but you don't see any of the actual murders. It's, it's really, it's really fascinating. It really uses dialogue to uh, dialogue and tone and, and mood and music in a very, um, very smart way. Um, St. Maud had the template to, possibly go in that direction but just just didn't do it for me it just came up short it just didn't 
by the time I was done watching, I was like, this woman is basically, uh, you know, as possible schizophrenia, some type of, some type of depression, some type of, uh, something it's, which I'd be fine with, but there's no, there's no sort of hinting along the way that maybe she has some type of schizophrenia and uh, things escalate where her condition overtakes her and she commits horrible acts or something like that. Things are sort of, I don't know. It, 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 it felt like the movie's trying to say a whole bunch of things and comment, uh, have commentary on a lot of things like religion, addiction, uh, depression, dealing with death, dealing with one's mortality and, and it sort of hinted around those types of subjects, but it never really committed to any of those directions. And uh, just, I don't know, uh, but that's whole thing. That's the whole thing that's so frustrating about it is like it was shot. Well, the actors were pretty good and location was cool. And, but it's just the story was just wasn't strong enough to, feel like it had a meaningful conclusion at all. So I don't recommend Satan. <laughs> maybe if you just put it on the background, like if you just, maybe you work from home and you like to have a movie in the background that you're not really listening to and you're not really looking at it too much, but you just like that it's on. Uh, yeah. You put on St. Mod in the background. It's fine. <laughs> What else did I watch? What other horrible Netflix movies did I watch? I watched two movies on Netflix. I had uh, I had family over for for Christmas, and my health is still not a hundred percent. So, you know. The only thing we can really do is sit around and watch movies, which was fine. Everyone's in their pajamas and we're just watching movies and hanging out. So I saw two movies on Netflix, one called Don't Look Up and uh, The Woman in the Window. Neither one of these movies I recommend. <laughs> um, Don't Look Up is, it's one of those movies that is, just a big waste of resources. Like I feel like movies like this, like all the people involved should ha um, have to give an equal sum of money for like whatever it costs for the production of the film, that money should be um, given back um, to, I don't know, a charity or something <laughs> because it, it probably took a lot spent. It looked like it probably cost a lot of money to make this movie. And it's basically what it is, is uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio are scientists and they work for NASA. And Jennifer Lawrence discovers that there's a, a meteor or an asteroid. I forget the difference. 
Um, but there, it's it's coming towards Earth, and it's go- going to definitely hit the Earth. And the thing's massive. It's basically like if you threw like a Mount Everest at the Earth, and there's about six months to collectively as a planet figure out what to do about this thing that's going to hit Earth. And if it, and when it hits, because it's supposed to hit with absolute certainty, it's going to kill everyone on Earth. So it's like Armageddon or Melancholia, if you've ever seen that movie. Melancholia is like one of the great unintentional comedies of the past 20 years. Especially Kirsten Dunst's performance in that is so hilarious. I I can't even I can't even I can't even stand it. It's but it has a similar formula. There's a big thing coming at Earth, and it needs to be stopped. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence they they go and tell uh, the White House where. Uh, she, she, they basically, they, they tell the president and basically the government doesn't really give a shit and they try to tell the media and the media doesn't really give a shit. Like they're, they're not taking this imminent threat seriously. And then by the, by the time they do take it seriously, it's like, this is the thing is still going to hit the earth anyways. Everyone's been just dicking around trying to get television ratings and trying to get reelected. This, all this absurdity. And it's, it, it does try to play the movie for laughs, but it's just not funny. It's, I could tell they're trying to be funny, but the humor is just, it's just not there. And, Again, I just I don't I think the cast is perfectly capable of having some uh, capable of performing humorous dialogue. You know what it's like? It's the movie really could have been something like Doctor Strange Love where there's this imminent threat and they played it really dry and which they they kind of do to some extent just government officials trying to figure out how to stop this imminent threat but there's all this very dry humor inserted into it it's like the office or something <laughs> and they just i don't know they just did it everything was just sort of like loud and dumb and i don't know and then the thing hits the earth and everyone dies the end that was uh that was don't look up. <laughs> I don't recommend it. There's there's plenty of other end of the world movies that are much more sad. Like Armageddon is probably more satisfying film than Don't Look Up. And I'm not the biggest Armageddon fan either. Uh, I, I also saw um, Amy Adams. And the woman in the window. Am I the only one who thinks Amy Adams just wasn't really suited to be Lois Lane in the Superman movies? Like, I look at Henry Cavill, and I look at her, and I just can't help but think, 
Henry Henry Cavill is way out of Amy Adams' league. Like, look, like I'm not gay, but if I was, Henry Cavill, that's the guy right there. Gorgeous man. And pulls off a mustache nicely. But, yeah, so anyways, with a woman in the window, Amy Adams... She's a child psychologist who's also an agoraphobic. She has an intense fear of leaving her house. She doesn't leave her house ever. And she lives in, I believe, Manhattan. And she lives in this giant fucking house. It's weird. It's kind of like a townhouse, but I don't know. She has a tenants in the basements. I don't know. It's weird. And... Which I, I don't understand that. Like, why do you have a tenant? You have a three-story fucking house and you're a doctor. Like, why do you bother even having tenants? Anyways. It's basically she thinks she witnesses a murder at her new neighbors across the street's place. It's a family. It's a husband, wife, and they have a teenage son. And the husband is played by Gary Oldman. Again, they're able to get these great actors and stuff, but the story is just like, she thinks she sees Gary Oldman kill his wife. Turns out he didn't, and she thinks she's crazy, and she is crazy. But by the time the story gets summed up at the end, you know, she's somehow not an agoraphobic anymore, and the story's basically like, oh, she's not crazy anymore but she is still crazy so it's basically a movie that's just it's like is Amy Adams crazy the whole time did she see the murder that she thinks she saw and Spoilers, uh, the fucking, I knew the first 10 minutes who the killer was. Because Gary Ullman and his family move in across the street, and the teenage son comes to visit Amy Adams. And he's like, like a little lip-biting weirdo. And I was like, well, that's the killer. I don't even know the rest of the fucking story yet. And I know that that kid is the killer. And guess what? The kid was the killer at the end. So, I don't know. I don't recommend The Woman in the Window. It's <laughs> If you want to see a really good, uh, like, uh, if you want to see a good, um, I mean, it's better than this movie, easily. There was a movie in 1995 called Copycat, starring Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter and Harry Connick Jr., but it's basically uh, Sigourney Weaver gets like attacked by Harry Connick Jr. and um, Harry Connick Jr. ends up going to fucking prison. And um, what is it like? She's basically like Sigourney Weaver is like a she's like a criminal profiler person. She's kind of like Clary Starling, 
and this attack fucked her up and she basically became agoraphobic and she can't leave her apartment. She just doesn't leave her apartment. She just works from home and she doesn't ever go anywhere. And then the police come to her and are basically like, Hey, there's a, there's a copycat killer. Who's like copying the uh, murders of famous serial killers. And we need your help to track this guy down. They think, okay, they think it's Harry Connick Jr., but he's in prison. So they're, they're, you know, that's a good movie. <laughs> it's a pretty damn decent 90s psychological thriller horror, not horror movie. It's, it's a psychological thriller. That's what it is. And go watch that. Don't watch The Woman in the Window. Watch Sigourney Weaver, Afraid to Leave Her Fucking House. It's a much better movie. Okay. Anything else that you didn't like that you want to tell us about, Adam? Yeah, actually. There's one more. Uh, Matrix Resurrections. Saw that, was looking forward to it. And it was bad. It was... (laughs) I was looking forward to seeing it. Like I'm a fan of the Matrix movies. I liked the Animatrix, you know, and I was I like I like the world. Like I can kind of look past, you know, Burning Man, underground dance parties, and fucking Bullet Time, Wire Kung Fu, and all that kind of shit. Because I liked the kind of the ideas that the original Matrix movie we're sort of playing with. But at this point in my life, I've noticed that I am pretty good at spotting red flags in trailers. If I see something and I'm like, there's something in that trailer that I can just tell that movie's just going to be a hot pile of liquid shit. And when I saw the trailer for Matrix Revolutions, the second I saw Neil Patrick Harris's face on the screen, I was like, that's a red flag. It's like when I saw the trailer to The Irishman and I saw a digitally de-aged Robert De Niro, I was like, oh no, that's not good. That's not a good sign. And I'm not wrong the opening uh, opening weekend of the matrix was not received well and uh the fucking irishman wasn't received well either so i know what the fuck i'm talking about um and i was like fuck neil patrick Harris. i can't stand neil patrick Harris. he's like the rod stewart of fucking actors to me i can't stand his face his voice i don't find him funny or humorous in any way. I don't find him talented. I <clears throat> I find him annoying and lame and uninteresting. But Adam, what about Starship Troopers? He's the worst character in Starship Troopers. Okay? He could have been played by anyone else. 
the his his actual character is interesting because he's like a telepath. He's like he has like um, you know he has like the he's like uh, Donnie Young and. Star Wars Rogue One, you know, he like has a he's got a little little bit of psychic ability. He's got a little bit of the force. He's not full blown touched by the force, but he's got a little bit, which is interesting. And um yeah, I saw Matrix Resurrections and it's um it's bad. You know, it's it runs completely not you know, not even like if the original Matrix movies make no sense to you, then I don't know what the fuck to tell you. <laughs> like to me, they totally make sense in the world that they're in. Okay, there's a certain amount of logic. You know, it's like horror movies. Okay, like Freddy Krueger. They set up the rules. Okay, he's a nightmare demon. Okay, he waits for you when you go to sleep. When you go to sleep, he's going to fucking kill you in his sleep, in your sleep. And if you die in your dream, you die in real life. Okay? That's sort of the framework that, you know, our protagonists have to try to fight and beat this monster. Very straightforward. And the, anyone who saw the original trilogy, which was kind of a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Like, Neo and Trinity die in those movies. But they're somehow alive. And the way they're resurrected is lame. <laughs> it's... It's... You know, they... I know that they established in part two because the, the Oracle from part one died before they made part two. So they just got another black lady to play the Oracle. And they have one little throwaway line of dialogue of when Neo sees the Oracle again, he's like, Hey, you're not the Oracle. And she's like, Oh yeah, I can change bodies so that I can avoid detection. And Neo's like, Oh cool. But it's like, even that doesn't make sense. Cause if you're going to change bodies, like if you're like, I'm an elderly black woman and all these murderous agents would would see me dead if they could. It's like, okay, what kind of other identity do you take on? Well, I'm just going to be another old black lady. It's like, well, what, what the fuck? <laughs> you could have been a you could have been a Hindu boy who's five years old. You know, the agents would never suspect that, but no, they don't do that. So basically, they use that logic to have Morpheus played by another actor to have, you know, bring Trinity and Neo back. And I'm just like, okay, by that logic, you can bring back anybody. You can bring back Cypher. You can bring back fucking, you know, you can bring back the architect. You can bring, you can bring back a lot of people. But I don't know, man. It just wasn't like everything that you like about the Matrix, you know, they just fail on all levels with all of those things. And 
like the like the fighting, the special effects, the 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 story of the one, the love story between Neo and Trinity, like all of those things that sort of made the first movies what they were. They just shit all over that stuff and leave you confused. Now I paid money to see the Matrix Resurrections. Like I was looking forward to seeing it and it's just it's not great, man. But if they end up making another movie, which they probably won't cuz this one didn't make much money, but if they ever make some in the future, which they probably will, it's like make like go the prequel route. Then you can kind of not be obligated to have all these other characters that we know you can have new characters and anyone who watched the original matrix knows, uh, or in the second one, there was six matrixes before the events of the first one. And every time they made a new matrix, it like failed for one reason or another. And the idea of the one is, the one was sort of like an anomaly in the coding that made the matrix. And every time they would make a new matrix, the coding would have this eventuality of like, there'd be a glitch and the one was always the glitch. And the one would bring the end to the matrix and restart the matrix. And, you know, it's, it's like, show, show that. You know, like the first, they said the first, like in the actual movie, The Matrix, Agent Smith talks about that the original Matrix was like a perfect world where everyone was happy and all this shit, but it was a failure and it was a disaster. It's like, fuck, show that. And show the other five Matrixes that just didn't work. They just fucking fell apart. Like, it's a little doomy and gloomy, but fuck it. I'd rather see good doom and gloom than this fucking happy horse shit, happy ending nonsense where nothing gets explained. You just know that the two main characters ride off into the sunset together. It's like, well, that's fucking boring. (laughs) Oh, I know guys. I know. Anyways, those are the movies that I saw that I uh, don't recommend. I, uh, but let me talk. Uh, that's uh, I didn't want to talk about any of that. Let me. Uh, <laughs> what I really wanted to talk about. So I have a small handful of movies that I did watch that I'd like to talk to you about. And the first one. Let's see. Which one should I talk about first? <laughs> Uh boy, I'm going to talk about a uh, a film from 2019 called The Golden Glove. It is based on a book by the by the same name, and it was uh, adapted for for film, and it's about the a true life German serial killer. Name of uh, Fritz Honka. 
And Fritz Honka murdered uh, four women between 1970 and 1975 and hid parts of his victims' bodies in the walls of his apartment. And he was eventually found out and sent to prison. And the movie, The Golden Glove, is about Fritz Honka. And, man, this movie can be really hard for people to watch. It's intense. And it's one of those... It's one of those movies that is like the set design is really good and it's shot really well and it's brilliantly acted. And, but when, I mean, but you got to remember it's a movie about a abhorrent, disgusting human being who does horrible things to other human beings. Okay, it's about a serial killer uh, that kills women. So this movie doesn't candy coat any of that. They want you to be crystal clear that this isn't some this isn't some anti-hero story where you sympathize with the killer in some way. Like the movie's makes it very clear that this person is is sick in the head and a monster and in every way possible visually he's horrifying looking like the original the the actual Fritz Honka in, in real life it's it's actually it's funny the the actor who played Fritz Honka was this tall, handsome looking fella named uh, Jonas Dassler. And he's like 20, tall and beautiful. But he's fantastic. He, the makeup that they used, uh, Fritz Honka had a completely crushed nose from like, a, from, I believe it was. Was it an automobile accident? Basically, his face was kind of deformed and he had a wonky eye. And they made him look... Well, Fritz Honka, I think at the time, was in his 40s. So they made this like tall 20-year-old guy look like a short, like slightly... Uh, not slightly, like this disfigured monster of a man. And really, everyone in this movie is disgusting looking. <laughs> I mean, the, this this is just... Let me explain how the, the movie just starts, okay? Uh, Fritz Honka tries to... Um, there is a woman laying on his bed naked. And you're not sure if she's passed out or dead. And... And it's in this really grimy, disgusting apartment. Like, you can almost smell the movie through the screen. And it's like that the whole movie. Like, it's so, 
the movie's so gross, like you feel like you can almost smell the movie. And there's it's in this grimy apartment, there's just pictures of naked women just plastered all over the walls and you know, uh Fritz Honka's character comes uh into the picture and he has a drink and a smoke because he's about to saw off this woman's head, who you find out is dead. And he stops to put on some music. And the music in this movie is actually really good. But um saws off the woman's head and the and wraps the woman's body parts in plastic and he throws some of them in a in the bushes behind his building and you know the when he comes home the camera kind of pans over the bloody tarp um that he just dismembered the woman's body on and this uh the woman's torso and one of her legs is wrapped up in i guess sheets and then it's trussed in place with like twine and he those are the body parts he keeps in this little crawl space in the wall of his um of his apartment he lives he lives in basically like an attic apartment so he's on the top floor and i mean that's how the movie opens and then the screen says hamburg 1970 and then um and then it jumps forward to 1974 so there's a period of time that this guy has been has been at it. So, so the actual, the name, the golden glove is actually the name of an actual bar in the red light district in uh, St. Paul in Germany. And it's still open to this day, you know? So next time you're in Germany, you can go to, um, the golden glove and go to this bar that Fritz Honka used to go to. And I mean, and it's a really like a where dreams go to die kind of fucking bar. It's, it's gross. It's occupied by just people who have crippling alcoholism, um, elderly prostitutes. <laughs> There's even a one-eyed, half-deaf ex-Nazi who just is one of the barflies there. It's it's kind of humorous in that way. There's like the characters of the bar are kind of gross and weird and disturbing and stuff, but it's, it's, I don't know. They seem like caricatures of some, something that is actually kind of humorous, but, um, the, the care, like all based, most of the characters, at least like 99% of the characters are something like out of a David Lynch meets John Waters film. Like everyone is gross and oily. And, and there's the story you like, you kind of learn what's going on in the movie as it goes along. Uh, Fritz Honka is a disgusting, pathetic drunk. And, like there's a, like there's a scene where he brings this gross pathetic drunk woman back to his home and i believe she's like like an elderly prostitute and after a romantic evening of well a romantic evening involving a a wooden kitchen spoon and a hot dog and uh 
gluing shattered dentures back together, uh, we get an exposition dump from Fritz's brother, Siggy, who comes to visit the his apartment. And he's a really loud, boisterous guy. And and it's, it's funny. He only speaks in analogies and expressions. So, um, but it's... There's a scene where him, this prostitute, and Fritz are sitting at the table, and he has this long exposition dump where he kind of gives some backstory to him and his brother's life and how they grew up. and um, That's really all the exposition you really get in the movie. Everything else is sort of like everything plays out in front of you and... Which I, I completely, you know, I, I get why the movie is vague in certain ways and very specific in certain ways. And it's adapted from a book and it's based on a real person. So they wanted to get certain details right, like how his specific apartment looks and how the uh, Golden Glove bar looks and how he, Fritz Honka actually looked and things like that. And I mean, he's like a like a Robert Crumb cartoon come to life. Just absolutely disturbing looking guy. And it basically walks through how he acquires victims, how he treats his victims, how he treats people in general. Like Fritz Honka was a bad guy. And, but the movie itself has a lot of style. It has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of really tense moments and, you know, things escalate and blow up into a violent mess uh, multiple times in the movie. And it had enough of the true life details um, interspersed with everything else to be a pretty decent movie. It's definitely not for everybody especially if scenes of physical violence, of sexual violence, substance abuse, things like that. If those types of things are not, you don't like to look at, like this movie's probably not for you. And that's, you know, that's fine. But it's one of those serial killer movies that uh, I think has its own, it's got its own flavor. And it's very well made. And the the director of the Golden Glove, <clears throat> a guy named um, Fatih Akin, I watched a couple of interviews with him after the after this was released, and he's a really sharp guy. I mean, it's having to field questions about this movie. You know, he seems prepared because people come at him with questions that are equal to them yelling, you know, how dare you make such a horrifying movie. And it's one of those things where he basically there was there was one uh, there was one question he was answering i remember where he was like well i know that we live in a that 
and a time of it's uh, like around the time of the me too movement and things like that. But he's like, and this movie depicts a lot of violence towards women. And he's like, but he's like, uh, he's basically like, that's a very American point of view. And he's like, and that sort of point of view is spreading throughout the world. But here's the thing. Like you don't, you know, you don't have the right to not be offended. Like he's like, this is a story that actually happened and it's not pleasant and it's 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 not for everyone but in terms of being a a film that has a point of view even though the point of view is horrifying it depicts things as fair as you could possibly want i mean it, it the, the movie tells what happened the grisly details as specifically as you could possibly imagine. But at the same time, you know, he's the director's like, look, the, the film is well made. The performances I got out of the actors are, you know, second to none. And he's like, I'm not going to apologize for making a movie that offends people because, He's like, I didn't write it. <laughs> this is this is a story of an actual person that existed. And not all stories need to be happy and pleasant. You know? And in a way it, it you know, it's he's you know, he's he's got a he's got a point, you know, it's disturbing like portraying disturbing things on film is is difficult. Like you to be convincing and to feel real, like, you know, that's, that's not easy to do. So, um, the movie itself is not, you know, particularly rated very high on your, um, on your, uh, more well-known aggregator type websites, your Rotten Tomatoes or metacritic or anything like that but it's and i get that but um i will say i've seen the golden glove three times and every time i watch it the first time you see it it's so shocking you know but by the time you see it a second time you can really kind of take a breath and enjoy the craft um, the actual craft of the filmmaking. And by the time you see it a third time, it's like this, I'm just like, wow, this is like very, very well made. It's in an insanely well-made film. So, and I, this is the first thing I've ever, I've, this is the first time I've ever seen anything by uh, uh, Fatih Alkin. And I, now I want to check out some of his other movies because it's just his level of detail and the, the types of performances he was able to get out of his actors is insane. And <laughs> I do recommend this movie. I do recommend the golden glove. Um, you know, ju I'm just saying like, be ready to see some extreme shit. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not 
a fucking Seth Rogen movie. Okay, it's not. <laughs> it's um, it's a different type of disturbing. It's not filled with. Yeah, well, it's not a Seth Rogen movie. Let's put it that way. But um, <laughs> that was that's the Golden Glove. Check it out. Um, it's maybe not something you want to watch with family. <laughs> I watched this by myself before my family actually showed up in town. And, um, yeah, I definitely, you know, maybe not something you want to have like old people or little kids around for. Yeah. <sighs> Let's see. What else did I watch? Ooh. I saw um, a movie from 2020. I don't think it's actual like worldwide release wasn't until um, this year, but it was made in 2020 uh, a movie called boiling point. Um, not to be confused with, uh, well, I think there's a Wesley Snipes movie called boiling point, <laughs> but this movie's from 2020 and it's directed by uh, Philip. I I'm going to butcher his last name. Um, Barantini, I believe it's Barantini, Philip Barantini. The movie stars Stephen Graham, and he was in This Is England. And if you've seen This Is England, he was also in uh, the movie Snatch. He was uh, the character of Tommy. He was Jason Statham's like uh, business partner in, um, in Snatch, and he's a he's a good actor. I like Stephen Graham a lot. Um, this is actually this is the this is the Christmas this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> this is the seasonal movie. Just so you know, it's not really a Christmas movie, but it takes place around Christmas time. It's as much of a Christmas movie as uh, Die Hard, and Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I'll debate that with anyone. Just because something takes place around Christmas time doesn't make it a Christmas movie. Okay. Okay. So uh, Stephen Graham plays uh, Andy Jones. He's a a chef, and the whole film is shot in one continuous shot. Okay. And um, Stephen Graham plays Andy. He's a chef who I feel like I know the guy personally. Um, I worked in restaurants. I worked in the culinary field for 15 years. Um, you know, in my twenties and early thirties and I eventually got out. It's just, it's an absolutely dead end career. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like I've worked with at least a dozen Andes in my career and this film is, it's basically one continuous shot over one night of service at this restaurant. There's no score to it. So it has this documentary type feel. And it goes through all the, uh, the drama and the stress that takes place in restaurants and the relationships with coworkers and the stress that chefs have on their shoulders and running a restaurant and having to balance that with their, with their 
know, their home life. And I, I like this movie. It's, it's, I mean, I'm so like, I've worked in, I worked in restaurants for so long. It's like, I feel like if I was somebody who didn't work in restaurants and saw this movie, this movie would be even better. But since I've worked in restaurants so long, I'm, I, I feel like I'm kind of watching the movie nitpicking it a little bit, but this movie has a lot of things going for it. Like this, like for instance, the, the restaurant that the movie takes place in is not an overly fancy restaurant. Like it's a pretty, um, and it was actually filmed in an actual restaurant. So that's great. And it was, so everything looks real. Like you, like the kitchen looks like a, like not even like a fancy really, really fancy restaurant, but a fairly nice restaurant, you know, but there's shots where they walk through the hallways and you can see like scuff marks on the walls and, you know, not everything is perfect. Everything like, it looks like a lived in like actual place. And I really enjoyed that, that it wasn't this overly fancy type of restaurant. It was like, you know, an above average nighttime popular restaurant. And, and so as a set, it's very realistic because it's an actual restaurant. And I, I really enjoyed that. So all the little details, you know, like they nailed because they were in a real place. And there was a, uh, I mean, there's a lot of archetypes in the film that are very realistic, um, simplistic, but you know, it's, I'm like, fuck It's like every character is like, I, I've known that person. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's sort of like the hot headed line cook guy. There's the annoying overbearing front of the house manager. And then, you know, there's, there's, they follow people who work in the restaurant. They follow servers to tables and like having to deal with, um, unpleasant guests and, you know, needy guests. And but it's, it's very, it's very realistic. So a lot of the things in the movie are, would never fly in a real restaurant. I mean, there's just the sort of the interpersonal relationships with some of the people who work there. It's like, at least the restaurants that I've worked in. And I used to run kitchens and stuff like that. And, there's a lot there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of people bringing their their personal life bullshit into work and things like that and but there's so much shit in this movie that just would not fucking fly and and I, I mean at least that's in service to showing the breaking point the boiling point if you will of the main character Andy the chef cuz he's you know estranged from his wife and his son you know, he's probably not the best father in the world. He is nursing a alcohol and cocaine addiction. He's um, overworked, overstressed. He's got pressure from investors and sous chefs. And, you know, and, and he's he's a guy who's basically unraveling. He's a guy who's in, you, you kind of come into the story as the dude is dropping the ball in his... Uh, his obligations to his with his investors and his staff and 
again, I've worked with a bunch of people like that, like chefs that are just absolute, absolutely falling apart, you know, from lack of sleep, alcoholism, drug use, and just watching, you know, the head of a business just rot and it just poisons everyone below it. And so Andy, um, has a chef friend that has another restaurant that I guess they used to work together with, uh, you know, at, and it's played by, uh, Jason Fleming. And he was like, he was in the movie snatch. He was like, uh, like when they go to Brad Pitt's like like gypsy trailer park, he's like his homeboy. He's like the dude that's just standing next to him the whole time. He's got like a mullet and shit. And um I think he was in he may have been in twenty eight days later too. I could be wrong, but I don't know. Um He's basically a he plays a he plays this guy named Alistair Skye. He's like another kind of big deal chef and whatever and He's a total smarmy, backbiting, sleaze, fucking kind of asshole chef guy, but, and Andy owes him a bunch of money. You know, it's, it's one of those things where they have like a business relationship. Um, they have like an ownership relationship to the restaurant that, uh, that Andy runs and, you know, the guy's just a total fucking sleaze, but it, in the real world, like, he's probably the most realistic character, unfortunately. Um, it's this whole thing where Alistair needs to get a bunch of money from Andy, and Andy's like, I, just, I don't have, fucking have it, dude. And, um, you know, uh, like, Andy has a sous chef named Carly, and one of the last restaurants I worked at that, I was a sous chef at like, I was like, Oh my God. Like I've been Carly, like Carly's overstressed, <laughs> overworked. And she has to pick up the slack of her executive chef and kind of look past a lot of his shortcomings because she's trying to keep that brigade system of the kitchen together. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a movie that's kind of balancing a bunch of different stories at the same time. And, it, you know, again, everything is shot in one continuous shot. So you just see this whirlwind of madness going on. And, um, well, there's like a scene where, and they establish it in the early on where there is a cup. There's a couple coming in and the guy's going to propose to his girlfriend during dinner. And they made it quite clear that, they're, they, the woman has a nut allergy. So she can't eat any nuts or she'll fucking die. <laughs> so basically, uh, the woman inevitably gets uh, some type of nut served in one of her dishes and has like a horrible allergic reaction to it. And she has to be rushed out of the restaurant and taken into an ambulance. And, you know, uh, the Alistair Sky character, who's like a part owner of the restaurant, is having an argument with Andy of like, 
He's like, this isn't good. Like, someone has to fucking, it's like someone's head has to fucking roll for this because, like, we can get sued. Like, this can get us shut down and you owe me a bunch of money and all this shit. And Alistair's like, we're just going to have to blame Carly. And Andy's like, yeah, but this isn't Carly's fault. And he's like, well, some somebody has to take the blame for this. And he's like, I can't fire Carly. Like, you know, she's like my right hand. And, you know, this isn't her fucking fault. And Alistair's just like, well, someone has to fucking take the, take the fucking, you know, take the blame for this. And it's, so there's all this, there's all this drama going on. And I will, I will say I have worked in restaurants that are, this level of drama just like the owners suck they're just greedy like ignorant assholes who have absolutely no knowledge or understanding of how food works how restaurants are operated you know they just want to uh they just want to be able to tell people they own a restaurant without having to take on any of the responsibility. They just want someone to make them a bunch of money. Here's Listen, if you're listening to this and you have some money laying around and you're thinking about investing in a restaurant or opening a restaurant, uh, don't. Don't do it. You're going to definitely lose money. Like Starting a restaurant or any kind of food business is like buying a new car. You know, as soon as you drive the thing off the lot, it automatically loses value. And that's what a restaurant is. A restaurant is a good way to put a bunch of money in a pile and light it on fire. You know, if you want to invest your money, get into uh, index funds or anything else. You know, real estate if you can, but don't invest in a fucking restaurant. That's just foolish. You know, most restaurants don't make it past their first year. A, a restaurant that can make it past five years, that's like a miracle. Like, <laughs> but this movie, uh, you know, it's it's got a lot of drama. It's uh, it's pretty pretty accurate to working in a restaurant. For real, but um, but the entire thing is, you know, it's it's like a play, really. It's like a play. They do the entire, they do they have a one large restaurant set, and they just the whole movie's done in one shot. And I'm I was really impressed by uh, how this movie was made. So, you know, if you want to kind of see something that's really uh, stressful and panic inducing and then it ends really grimly watch boiling point 2020 <laughs> uh, you know I mean I probably won't watch boiling point again I think once was enough for me personally but if like I don't know if if restaurants and chef life seems sort of interesting to you like it, you know you and you want to watch some kind of drama based chef thing watch boiling point you know it's i think it was you know for what it was i think it was a pretty well done movie and it looks like it was done on the cheap and um i don't know i thought it was i thought it was an interesting movie also uh sorry for that like rattling 
vibrating noise. It just stops, but it was in the background, and um, I realized that uh, on the opposite opposite side of the wall behind me, somebody's washer and dryer is there, and um, that's really fucking annoying. So, if you've been having to sit there and listen to that fucking banging, that repetitive banging noise in the background. It's somebody doing laundry. So. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. I'm going to have to have fucking words with somebody. Oh, boy. Anyways. (laughs) So. I want to recommend a short film to you. Okay, I'm a big fan of the British director Alan Clark. Uh, Alan Clark actually passed away in the early '90s, and but he made some really awesome movies in his time. And I think eventually I'll get into uh, I'll do an episode on about Alan Clark films. Um, he made. What was it? Uh, I know I've talked about it on the show before. Uh, He did a movie with Gary Oldman called The Firm. And it's about these, uh, like, rivaling, uh, well, soccer clubs called Firms. Okay. Alan Clark, yes. Alan Clark uh, made some absolutely fantastic movies. One was called uh, Made in Britain. And it stars a very young Tim Roth. Um, Big fan of Tim Roth. I know he's done some, like, TV stuff in the past few years. And uh, he was in... He was uh, Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs. He was in Four Rooms. That's that's a really fun movie. But, uh, I mean, he was like a teenager when he was in Made in Britain. And it's basically about this, this young criminal 16-year-old skinhead kid who's just d- dedicated his life to just being a shitty criminal juvenile asshole. <laughs> But it's really real. It's really well made. It's really intense, and um, there is a uh, there's actually an Alan Clark box set that exists, and uh, Made in Britain is is in that box set. The Firm is in that box set, and uh, a movie called Scum, which is probably Alan Clark's most well known movie, and I've mentioned it before on this show, and it's. It's basically about this boys' prison in um, like detentional facility, uh, detention facility in Britain, and it's it's rough. I mean, it's like it's a drama-filled, intense prison movie, but with children, and it's really good. It's and it's and that's the third movie in the uh, in the box set, but also. 
there is a short film included in the Alan Clark box set. There's Made in Britain, there's The Firm, and uh, Scum. And the short film that's in it is the one I want to talk to you about today. And it's called Elephant. Not to be confused with the, what was it, early 2000s film Elephant, directed by Gus Van Zandt. This is... This is uh, Alan Clark's Elephants, which came out first. It came out in 1989. And it was a short film that was... It was actually made for television. Which, thinking about it now, that's weird. (laughs) Because this movie is incredibly violent. And it's... It clocks in at just under 40 minutes long. And... Uh, it was actually produced by Danny Boyle, who directed uh, 28 Days Later and uh, Train Spotting. This was at a time where he was doing mostly producer work. And um, basically, the, the elephant is based on the, the expression, the elephant in the room. And as in, there's something obvious. There's like this big obvious thing in our presence and, you know, people ignore this big obvious thing. And in Elephant, it's addressed, but it's not specifically addressed with dialogue or anything like that. It's just expressed in pure violence on screen. And... Um, and the idea of the elephant in the room, it's a a reference to the collective denial of the underlying social problems in Northern Ireland. And, and they were referred to as the troubles and the troubles were this ethno nationalist conflict in Northern Ireland that lasted, um, almost three decades, almost 30 years from uh, late, the late 60s, 68, 69 to uh, 1998. And it's been a long, it's been a long, very religious based uh, conflict between um, Protestants and Catholics in, in Northern Ireland. And an elephant has, no dialogue whatsoever. There's barely any speaking in it. There's only a couple of times where anyone actually speaks. And when they do, it's, it's, it's about as minimal of dialogue as you can possibly imagine. And basically what the entire movie is, is, They turn that fucking dryer on next door again. God damn it. I hope it's not uh, super loud. I apologize for that. Basically, uh, what uh, Elephant depicts is um, 18 separate murders. And each murder were based on actual police accounts of actual murders that have taken place that seem to be linked to the troubles 
to um, retaliatory violence between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, but with no dialogue. So you actually only see the murders take place, and then it cuts to another scene or another murder takes place at a different location with different people. It's very strange. And it's it, it very much it's very much like uh, boiling point in that it feels like a it feels like a documentary in some way, and every scene is similar but different. It'll follow some person. They'll rather come out of a car or they'll come around a corner or whatever, and you see them walk. And there's a tracking shot where you just follow the person along, and they'll go into a building of some kind or they'll be walking on the street or whatever and then they'll come across another person and then they'll just shoot the person to death and it's it's fascinating because a lot of the places where people are killed there's no one else around so you have these it's like it's like a it's very wide angle lens sort of like large empty spaces whether if it's like a field park a large empty street in a neighborhood there's like no one else around there's there's just the main person who we they don't establish who these people are and the victim and you don't know who the victim is but they but when you watch it you can see that there's probably some type of they basically work across the the different socioeconomic uh kind of you know the, the, <laughs> the strata, if you will. There's you have certain places that seem sort of like poor and run down. You have, uh, and then you have like really, you 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 know the killers maybe show up in a really nice car and kill somebody in a really nice house, and then there's like more kind of like middle class type of areas where murders take place and you know the and, and the actual people who are doing the killing don't necessarily look like some kind of crazy killer and the victims don't even look like gangster types or you know or it's it's very strange that way because you when you watch it you know that it's going to show one murder and then another murder and then another murder but it people's intentions are are sort of hidden in plain view, it's hard to tell when the actual murder is going to take place. It's hard to tell where it's going to take place and how or whatever. But it's like it's forty minutes of you're just completely sucked into it, and you and it sounds like it's something that you would get get sick of watching very quickly. But the way that it's shot is it's very dynamic, and every sort of um, vignette that they go to is it's very it's very scary you know there's the the camera doesn't really look away it, it like it follows the person that's going to do the deed and it shows them kill the person and then it sort of the camera will just linger on the body for a few seconds you know and there's no music there's no narration there's no dialogue it's just uh, you have these open spaces. Some of the times they're in a, inside of a factory, inside of an office building, in an apartment, in front of a liquor store, inside of a liquor store. Um, 
it's all these different locations. It's all these people who, when you look at them, you see how they're 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 dressed. You know, it's there's there's no reason to think that anyone like sometimes you can't tell if you're looking at the victim or the killer until it actually the the actual shooting happens, and it does this for forty straight minutes. And I mean, I was totally sucked into it. And when I looked into the uh, the background of um, of the the troubles as as they're called in in Northern Ireland and how long that's been going on and how it started and people's sort of national identity for um, you know people of Ireland and people who want to be part of um, be part of the UK and be and be part of, of more of a European identity and it's it's so it's fascinating you know and i i and i mean i remember the the closest contact that i've had with these type of things besides you know like music <laughs> it's like but most people don't give a shit you know it's like you two or the cranberries write some kind of song about or um Sinead O'Connor, <laughs> you know, people like that who write about, uh, or what else? Uh, I don't know, like Stiff Little Fingers have a, uh, they have the song off of uh, the Inflammable Material album, uh, Alternative Ulster, which Northern Ireland is referred to as, as Ulster. And so a lot of, the, I mean, it's like you you hear about these things, but there's I mean there's actually quite a few movies that talk about uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland and all those things kind of just like sailed right past me. But in research for uh, this episode, I was I was fascinated about um, how even to this day, and I mean, and granted, the uh, government Nor- Northern Ireland is uh, taking steps to kind of quell this this long-standing hatred between these two kind of warring factions but the thing that's interesting is like people in many neighborhoods uh like they would build physical walls between like in neighborhoods you know to separate uh neighborhoods they would build big tall walls and fences and just to keep you know, they'll keep the Protestants on one side and keep the Catholics in the other. And, I mean, that goes all the way from adults all the way down to children. You know, there's Catholic schools and there's Protestant schools. And, you know, it's it's absolutely fascinating. You know, and it's it's one of those things. It's just another one of those things when I kind of look at America now and other parts of the world, too, like Australia and France and I'm just like the the story of uh, the the story of the conflict in Northern Ireland the troubles in and Northern Ireland are I mean there's there is a there is a cautionary tale in that that I think other parts of the world could really benefit from because my god you know even even back to the civil war where it's just you know if you know you 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 don't want to be in a position where you you have bloodlust towards your neighbor. You know, that's, 
that's never works out well. Yeah. And an elephant is one of those movies that I, I think, I mean, I mean, it piqued my interest, you know, I, I really had a very limited understanding of that, um, of that entire conflict in that part of the world. You know, I had a very, very limited cursory knowledge of it. And after seeing elephant, which it, it, it inspired me to go, go look into it and go watch, uh, news footage and, you know, you know, documentaries and, and just kind of see how this whole thing started and how to this day, like things are, relatively peaceful but there's still this horrible segregation going on there and it's 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 quite amazing that even to this day that's still going on so um but yes elephants 1989 alan clark check it out uh i definitely recommend um i mean you can find it online you know it's not particularly long you know it's 39 minutes long but um i love the graininess of the it's shot on 16 and you know, it's uh, Alan Clark just has a look to his movies, you know, a lot of tracking shots, a lot of in, intense. Um, it's just, there's a, there's a real realness to his movies. Uh, especially things like lighting, like just sort of the, the cold, bitter, just bleakness of, interior lighting and factories and jails and prisons and you know the the gloominess of dilapidated buildings with graffiti on them and just that sort of feel like he's really good at capturing that and yeah elephant uh, elephant's great but i definitely recommend it i definitely recommend scum uh that's from uh 1979 1980 and um and made in Britain. And if, I mean, if you can get a hold of the Alan Clark box set, I have the Alan Clark box set. It's great. It's, if you can get a hold of it, um, just buy it. It's great. <laughs> Especially if you collect physical media. Yeah. At all. It's, it's, it's great. And, um, let's see. Uh, you know what? I want to talk about one more movie. That's is actually, an actual documentary. It's an actual documentary. Unlike Boiling Point and um, Elephant, that feel like documentaries. This next one is an actual documentary, and um, I kind of threw it on this list at the last second. I, uh, you know, I. I on I like doing documentaries. I like talking about documentaries on this show a lot, and this was one that I surprised I haven't really thought about talking about until now. And that would be 2009's "Until the Light Takes Us." And "Until the Light Takes Us," uh, it's kind of a sparse history of the the uh, Norwegian black metal scene in Norway. Uh, and in the uh, in the early '90s, late '80s, early to mid '90s, and it really talks about sort of the originating OG bands of that time and place, like 
Dark Throne, uh, Burzum, Mayhem, um, uh, Immortal, Satyricon. But it, it, it mostly follows a couple of the kind of key figures, sort of figureheads in, in the Norwegian black metal scene. There's uh, Fenris, who is the drummer and leader of a, a band called Dark Throne, who's been making albums forever. I mean, they still make albums, and they really explore different types of metal and... Um, they're really fucking good. I definitely recommend Dark Throne. It's um, also uh, the there was a band pre Dark Throne. It's not mentioned in the documentary at all, but it's like I I listen to black metal, so these are just random bands I'm that are connected to the story that I'm just gonna recommend because I think they're good, especially if you're listening to this and you like listening to metal or you have sort of kind of an interest in black metal, but don't know too much about this subject matter. Um, there was a band pre dark throne called Isengard. And that's a really, that's a fun band. It's good. It's, it's not quite as, it's not quite as, uh, heavy or as gnarly as, as dark throne, but it's still really good shit. Isengard. Check that out. And, um, and then, so the 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 movie started from the perspective of Fenris from Dark Throne, and uh, a guy named Varg Vikernes, who is the sole member of a band called Burzum, another Norwegian black metal band. And there's a couple other people. There's a guy named Frost, who's a drummer of a band called Satyricon. He was also in a band called uh, Thirteen Forty Nine but he's primarily known as being a satiricon. And um, there's a couple other people. There's uh, Abath and Demonaz who are, uh, they're in a band called Immortal, another Norwegian black metal band. There's a bunch of other people too, but it's, it's mostly uh, Fenris and Varg are the two main sort of people that the story revolves around. And it basically the the documentary talks about how okay well when you meet Varg he's in a Norwegian prison and it is explained that uh, Varg killed a member of probably the biggest Norwegian black metal band probably one of the it's probably the biggest black metal band ever is this band called Mayhem and Mayhem's been around since like uh, the mid eighties. And they're still around today. I think they're still touring right now. And they're an insanely good band. Um, I had the pleasure of seeing them uh, not long after I saw this movie. Um, but they're fucking awesome live. And so basically, the uh, <laughs> Varg ended up in prison because he had disagreements with the guitar player and leader of Mayhem, a guy named... Euronymous. By the way, all these names are all sort of like fictitious names that these guys uh, appointed themselves. They all have regular Norwegian names, but I'm just going to refer to them by their band monikers in case there's any, just, just for simplicity's sake. And basically, 
um, Varg Vikernes, who, who uh, he committed a bunch of arsons to Norwegian churches, old New Norwegian churches, like thousand-year-old wood churches throughout uh, Norway in the mid-90s. And along with some other people that are essentially unknown, but he was... He, yeah, I mean, at the time of filming, he was serving uh, time for the murder of Euronymous from Mayhem and committing arson against these uh, historic uh, churches in Norway. And he was actually at the tail end of his sentence. I believe he was sentenced to 21 years in prison, but I think he only served like 18, something like that. And, um, you know, uh, he interviews very well. He's has a certain level of charm to him and he comes off as pretty well read and articulate. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember the, in the documentary, make sure that you're reminded that he murdered another guy <laughs> and then committed arson too. Basically his, his version of the events since, um, is dead. He, um, he was, told that there was this uh, plot to uh, buy Euronymous to abduct him and take him into the woods and uh, torture him to death and uh, and film it to make a snuff film. And when uh, Varg heard about Euronymous's plans, he was none, none too happy about it and they also, it was also uncomfortable because uh, his band Burzum was on Euronymous's label because Euronymous had his own record label and um, they had some monetary and contractual disputes. And one night, uh, Varg goes to Euronymous's home to deal with some contractual things. And one thing led to another, and, uh, you know, None of us were there to see the actual events take place, but according to Varg, he was attacked by Euronymous, and he was essentially defending himself, and with the knowledge of knowing that Euronymous had a plot to kill him, he ended up killing Euronymous. He ended up uh, stabbing him to death. So uh, that's sort of the the main chunk of the movie. They also talk about uh, the, the band Mayhem's singer, um, the singer's name was Dead, and um, Dead committed suicide in the um, sort of the the home of the band Mayhem, where they all lived in sort of this uh, rural area of, out in Norway. He uh, he shot himself, and uh, Euronymous, who was his roommate at the time, uh, took photos of his dead body, of of dead of dead's dead body. And those photos actually ended up making it to a mayhem release, uh, entitled Dawn of the black hearts. So if you want to see a color photo of the singer of mayhem with his head blown off, um, you could see it on the, um, on the, uh, Dawn of the black hearts album. So all of that is, uh, 
kind of makes up the the main chunk of the uh, of the documentary. So basically, there was this music scene, this extreme metal music scene in a in a specific part of the world where there ended up being a lot of crimes committed, arsons, murders. Of uh, you know, there were suicides. There were and then it was the 90s, so people still were still, the world was living in this uh, satanic panic, satanic fear um, era of, you know, like, you know, parents were still afraid of Ozzy Osbourne in the 90s. You know, uh, there was the, what was it? There was the story of that kid who committed suicide and they had a, a Judas Priest record on his turntable when, you know, his parents found his body. And um, there was a whole trial about it. They took the singer of Judas Priest, Rob Halford, to court. And basically, were, you know, the prosecutors were trying to say that uh, Judas Priest's records play backwards, has hidden messages that caused this, this young man to commit suicide. <laughs> and this footage is online. You can just find it. Like Rob Halford reading his lyrics and them playing um, a, a Judas Priest song backwards and, and trying to uh, suggest that the, the lyrics backwards said, get the gun, get the gun, shoot, shoot, shoot. And that's what caused this young man to commit suicide. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but that was the time that was the time that it was. And um, some of these things are, discussed in um, a book called uh, Lords of Chaos and actually I, I by the time I got uh, kind of became privy to this I I, I still own the second edition of uh, Lords of Chaos and it's, it's the book is kind of all over the place but the idea is kind of talking about like what made the satanic panic and uh, yeah, the sort of you know uh, Scandinavian metal scene so impactful and so terrifying. And since then there was like, there was a movie called Lords of Chaos that basically details, um, well, details, quote unquote details, the story of mayhem, how they became a band, how Varg and Euronymous started butting heads, and then it actually shows, uh, you know, a movie depiction of Varg murdering Euronymous. And I, I saw Lords of Chaos, uh, the movie, when it came out, and it's a, it's okay. It's it's pretty corny, um, but I think, you know, it it gets the point across about that particular story about those particular bands that had beef at that time and how those, how that concluded. It, it is kind of corny, especially if like you're a fan of the genre and you're, you, you know, the story about all this stuff. So, but seeing a movie depiction, it was, it was okay. It was, I didn't think it was a terrible movie, but it was, it was all right. But really, it's like Lords of Chaos, Until the Light Takes Us, uh, Lords of Chaos, the book. I think all of them have, like, conflicting narratives of, like, what's true and how true are certain things and what's embellished. And it's it's kind of hard to tell, but you have a, 
you know, it paints enough of a picture for you to kind of understand the, the, the meat of, you know, the more salacious parts of it. And, you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of things that weren't really talked about it, it, more so in Lords of Chaos, the book, um, you know, this isn't the story of mayhem and Burzum and the murder of Euronymous and the church burnings and all those things, you know, the, you know, the story of dead committing suicide. And I mean, that's a whole thing too. Allegedly, um, not only did Euronymous take pictures of dead's dead body when he, you know, when he discovered him, his dead body, not only did he take pictures, but he allegedly took fragments of his skull and, made necklaces out of it and gave it to some of his closest friends and allegedly took an eight part of dead's brain. So there's all those types of stories and it's like, are they true? Who knows? But it, you know, it adds to the boogeyman appeal of this genre of music and whatever. Uh, but there was a lot of other, there was, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, there was a like one of the guys from a, a Norwegian black metal band called Emperor, which is one of a huge, huge band in that scene. Um, I, I believe it was one of their guitar players. Um, he he murdered some fucking guy, and that's actually that's actually in the Lords of Chaos movie. I I believe that yeah, that murder he ended up killing some. Uh, A homosexual man who I think made a pass at him um, in a park in Norway. And a similar thing took place with the lead singer and guitar player of a Swedish band called Dissection. And a lot of stories like that just really added to the uh, terrifying flavor of of black metal and the story of black metal. And, but I think, uh, until the light takes us really takes a more, um, digestible kind of artistic tone. You know, it's, it's, it's incredibly watchable. I like, I first saw until the light takes us in 2009 at the Urbuena Center of the Arts in San Francisco. And at that point, I've been listening to black metal seriously for about seven years. And like that time of, you know, the kind of that time, and especially in that place, like the San Francisco Bay Area was a gold mine for music. Um, you know, especially metal, especially, uh, even, even black metal. Um, like that same year I saw until the light takes us, I saw the Swedish black metal band Marduk that are really fucking intense band and they really good live show. And I mean, there were some technical difficulties at that live show and there's videos of it online, but um, for the most part, like Marduk is, that's some gnarly fucking shit. And, and just in that time frame, 
I saw so many good like shows. I saw I saw Mayhem. I saw uh, there was a band from Oakland called Ludacra. Really good, kind of a uh, black metal band, but they had all these other kind of like like in heavy, interesting um, style to their music. They weren't they weren't one dimensional at all, and. Um, saw Wolves in the Throne Room a couple of times, and also saw Motorhead around that time. They're not a black metal band, but just thought I'd mention it because Motorhead's awesome. <laughs> um, God, I had I had a I had a week long headache, like my of my and my ears were ringing for a straight week after I went and saw. Uh, a band called Midnight, who's still touring. If you you know if you want to listen to a really fun metal band, uh, Midnight's awesome. They were playing with this band from Oakland called Saviors, and this band called uh, Lightning Swords of Death. And I saw them one night, and then the next night I went and saw the Melvins at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. And the Melvins were doing. They were doing two nights, and each night they would play two albums back-to-back. And I saw them on one of their nights. They did the Bullhead album and the Stoner Witch album back-to-back. And, fuck. I saw it the, the night after I saw Midnight, and my ears were just completely destroyed for a straight week. Like, I just had ringing in my ears. But it was fun. If you ever get a chance to see the Melvins... Check them out. They're fantastic live band. And, you know, they're not a black metal band, but <laughs> they're, they're a huge, very influential band, very heavy, and, um, yeah, good shit. What else did I see around that time? Now I'm just, like, getting rushes of just memories of just shows I went to around that time. And um, I saw Anal Cunt twice. <laughs> I saw them two different times spread over a couple of years and <laughs> I don't know why anal cunt gets brought up so much on this show. I don't know. They're a band I, I find really funny. So I, you know, I bring them up. I know they're like the most hated fucking <laughs> like metal band ever, but uh, I don't know. I like them anyways. Uh, around this time I also saw uh sun, I saw them at the mezzanine and good God, that was a weird experience. Sun is like, they're just a wall of sound. They're just a wall of noise and it's just so heavy and loud. Um, the, uh, the mezzanine is, <clears throat> it's a weird venue. Cause it's like, it's just a big, brick building with just cement floors and um when i saw sun there it was like they were so fucking loud that people were like passing out just because it like the waves of sound were so like the vibrations of it like people were like standing there closing like their eyes closed. They'd close their eyes and just stand there and they would just, you'd see people just start rocking back and forth and then falling over. 
like Sun is the only show I've been to that when I left the show, I couldn't fucking feel the bottoms of my feet. My feet were numb because they were vibrating the floor for so long that the bottoms of my feet just were vibrated into a state of numbness. And I remember in the mezzanine is like in an alleyway. And I remember walking back home. I had to like walk through the tenderloin to get home. Then it probably took me about 30 minutes to walk home. But my fucking feet were numb the entire walk home. <laughs> well, that was weird. Um, also, at the same venue, the mezzanine, I saw uh, Death in June, which is not a metal band at all. That was a band I never thought I'd ever see. And, but they played a really fucking amazing show. So. If you ever want to listen to a sort of a weird acoustic post industrial often referred to as a neo folk type of band very kind of moody acoustic music um check out death in june they're very they're very much a underground cult heavy cult following type of band that's um just shrouded in controversy but they're very mysterious and kind of elusive at the same time anyways <laughs> yeah um yeah so much of the music that came out in that like five-ish years between like 2007 and like 2011 2012 so much fucking so much music came out like in in terms of just like black metal like like uh bands like Watane Burzum because around that time uh after until the light takes us the uh, Vardvikernis was actually released from prison not long after that so as soon as he got out of prison he started making albums like immediately which that dude needs to make money because I heard a long time ago, like for burning down the churches in Norway, he owes like the, the Norwegian government, something like $2 million, something crazy like that. So he started cranking out fucking new albums as soon as he could. And, um, uh, so let's see. So Burzum had new albums come out around that time. So did Marduk, uh, the San Francisco band called Leviathan, it's like a one man band. It's this dude named Jeff Whitehead. And he was kind of known at the time for being like a tattoo artist in town, but, uh, he had this band fucking Leviathan and it's really fucking good black metal. And, um, he also had a project called lurker of chalice. That was really good. And I think to this day, lurker of chalice has only done one album. He may have done a second one, like way, way years later, but I, I'm, Lurker of Chalice is a much more uh, moodier, kind of uh, atmospheric type of uh, heavy band. And Leviathan is like a straight up uh, black metal band. Really good shit. Um, and then what was it? Uh, uh, Leviathan did like a super group band with like guys from... Uh, uh, there was like... Knocked Mistium and a couple other band. I saw Knocked Mistium actually open up for Marduk when I saw them play, but they had the, but anyways, they had this like uh, black metal super group called Twilight. And, um, 
they did some albums around that time. And there was a also like in terms of like Bay Area bands, there was um, a, a one another one man band that actually played live, that actually played shows. And I saw this band play before. I seen them play one time. This band called uh, Pan's Discordian Necrogenesis. <laughs> And uh, that shit's rad. Like, <laughs> I just remember, uh, like, I never even heard of the dude. And I went to some fucking, I can't remember what show it was. I went to go see some other band. Oh, my God, what was it? I don't know. It's going to bother me. I forgot. I went to go, I went to some show to see one black metal band. And Pence's Cordian Necrogenesis opened. And he play. He sits in a chair. He's playing guitar, and then his feet. <laughs> his feet are on two kind of like kick drum pedals, and one pedal is like has a drumstick attached to it, and it's hitting a snare drum. And then the other pedal has a drumstick that's hitting a cymbal. So it's just, <laughs> he's playing drums with his feet and he's playing guitar and he's and he's singing and he's wearing like a ski mask <laughs> good shit man i thought that shit was i love going to a show to see one band and then you see like one of the opening bands and they're just as good if not better than the headliners i love shit like that like um especially around that time i was uh really into like experimental music and noise and bands and um i went to go see this one noise band from the Bay Area called uh, 16 Bitch Pile Up. And um, I was really into noise music at the time. And um, I actually had my own, like, noise band. And I did a few shows around uh, San Francisco and stuff like that. But, you know, that was more of a hobby sort of thing. And uh, I went to, oh, God... What was the name of that place? It was on Polk Street. Oh, it was called the Hemlock Tavern. And the Hemlock Tavern had like, it's one of those kind of like old kind of dingy bars. It was kind of a dive, but it's one of those places that like hipsters and people from the marina, when they want to go down to like, they want to go kind of near the Tenderloin. They want to kind of go slum it up a little bit. They'll go to the Hemlock Tavern. The Hemlock Tavern had a room in the back where they used to have shows and I went there to go see 16 pitch pile up and uh, the opening bands I think were, I may be getting my shows confused. This may have been some other show, but anyways, I, I saw this band called sword heaven and they were a band from Columbus, Ohio and sword heaven is a two man group. And it's sort of like really insane, heavy drumming, like just epic, almost kettle drum beating the fucking drums of war type of drumming and like noise and screaming. And it was like one of the most intense things I've ever seen live. And it was fucking awesome. And I bought their fucking record. I bought their goddamn CD and shit. And fucking Sword Heaven is awesome. I don't think I... I still have the record. I don't think I ever opened it. But I have the CD, I think, still. And 
but that was a pleasant surprise. Like, you know, I never heard of them until I saw that show. I was like, this band's the shit. And I think they only did like two albums and then they just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I want to say that this, it might, I think I was going to see, was it 16 bitch pileup? Anyways, there was this band called thrones and thrones is just one dude. (laughs) And, um, he plays bass, he sings and, um, his drums are uh, are recorded like electronic drums, and it's this dude named uh, Joe Preston. And Joe Preston was in the, he was actually in the Melvins for a time when the Melvins did those like they did their version of like the Kiss albums where it was like the front cover would be each individual member of the fucking band like. Like uh, the Melvins did a similar thing, and um, and Joe Preston was in the Melvins when they when the Melvins came out with that. But yeah, good good fucking shit, man. There was so much good music going on around that time. So having to actually go see a movie like Until the Light Takes Us around that time was cool. It was like you know there was tons of music to listen to. There was tons of music to go see. And then there was people doing documentaries about it and writing books and stuff. So that that was kind of rad. And, um, what else was coming on around that time? Um, another band that's from California, but it's still really good. Like black metal is a band called Zaster. Um, Zaster did a split album with, with Leviathan actually. So, um, that's, that's kind of cool. That was a good split. And Leviathan did a, a split with this band called Cree Bane. That was pretty rad. And <clears throat> I remember what was it? Vice came out with this multi-part series called, um, I think it was called one man metal and one man me- uh, metal followed, I think it followed three different one man black metal bands. One of them was Zaster from LA. It followed Leviathan from San Francisco and Oh my God. What was the other guy? He lived in fucking like Tasmania or something. I can't remember the other fucking band, but that was, I mean, that was, that was an interesting, I mean, man, I, I say it all the time, man. That's where, that's where Vice kind of fucked up. When the Vice got into, like, doing news, I think that's where they kind of fucked up. Like, they really should have just stuck with just doing kind of, like, documentaries and things like that. Because that's more in line with, like, what the old Vice magazine was. It's just, like, these weird articles about very specific things and... You know, I, I mean, Vice still comes out with stuff like that, but One Man Metal was like one of those things that came out that I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, you know what it was? It was Streeborg. That was the third band. And it just follows like these three guys and how they make music by themselves and release it and what influences them. Is, you know, and some stories are kind of dark, some of them are kind of fucking corny, but. It was, you know, it's interesting nonetheless. If you want to watch another kind of black metal documentary that's not 
terribly long. Check out One Man Metal. It's on Vice. It's not hard to find. You can probably find it on YouTube. Uh, what the fuck else was out around that time that was super rad? Like, Satanic War Master was putting out shit around that time. Um, <clears throat> Pro Fanatica. Pro Fanatica's tight. They came out with a bunch of shit around that time. And they were actually playing live shows, and they re-released, like, some of their older stuff. Um, they did this rad box set. It was like it was like made of wood. <laughs> it had like rivets and shit in it. Um you know, and um Abruptum, which I think was also I think they were a Norwegian. I think they were Norwegian. But yeah, they were around back in the fucking the Mayhem Burzum times, you know, in, in Norway they actually um I mentioned earlier that Euronymous from Mayhem had a his own record label and one of the bands was Burzum <laughs> and one of them was Mayhem and I I'm pretty and this other band called Abruptum that was on there and that's it's a weird uh two man group and it's really kind of it's structured really weird it's very drum dominant there's a lot of noise um allegedly there's sounds of the band members torturing each other in it. <laughs> like the sounds of them screaming. <laughs> I actually own a fucking awesome abrupt them long sleeve shirt that I got in Mexico. Uh, like in 2009. Yeah, it was 2009. Cause that's when my grandpa got married. My grandpa went and got married in Mexico <clears throat> and I went to his wedding. And while I was out in Mexico, I found this like, little tiny shack of a store and it just sold metal shit and it had like awesome shirts there it had awesome shirts and pins and patches and shit like that and but i i know it's somewhere around here but yeah i got the most awesome fucking uh it was like the abruptum evil genius album and it had the fucking front cover on the front it had their logo down the sleeves and then it had a giant fucking uh picture of the back of this like really creepy looking uh, painting of one of their uh, members and then it's this fucking evil genius underneath it it's so sick uh <laughs> yeah abruptum was still making uh, albums around that time and uh let's see there was a band from texas called uh absu absu was coming out with shit around that time and they're they're black metal but they have a lot of like thrash and like progressive kind of elements to them. They're a very technical band, but they're fucking weird and they've been around a long time and they, their shit's really solid. I've, I've always wanted to see Absu live. They're really, they're supposed to be really intense live. And, uh, yeah. And Dark Throne was dropping a couple albums around that time too. Like they were kind of moving more in like, a um, kind of like thrashy punk, kind of direction around that time so that 2007 to 2011 2012 time that's really good time for for metal to be into metal and not just black metal like you know fucking doom metal and thrash and and death metal like it was it was a pretty fucking magical time um let's see and like, 
what should I call it? There's so many good bands. They're more like the Lords of Chaos book touches on it a little bit more. But I mean, the other bands in that scene that were really fucking awesome that aren't really mentioned. They're mentioned in the book. They're not mentioned in the Lords of Chaos movie at all because it's a movie and they have to have some type of narrative, some kind of like conflict and resolution type of thing. You know, and you're constricted by time, so you can't have you can't be showing too many fucking bands and all their bullshit. But um, bands around that time, uh, Dissection from Sweden, unbelievably good band. Um, actually, a buddy of mine, this guy I actually used to work with in a kitchen. <laughs> uh, he was my sous chef when I was like a line cook, when I was a young line cook, and. Uh, uh, dude Mike who was like a total metalhead guy and he was actually in a black metal band in Oakland um, he got me turned on to uh, Dissection and it was the album called uh, Storm of the Lights Bane and uh, we were in his car and we were driving back to the city after a long night of partying and uh, I think we had to work that that night too, so we were horribly hungover, like driving across the bridge. And he put on uh, a song from Storm of the Lights Bane called "Where Dead Angels Lie." And he turned and looked at me, and he's just like, "You want to hear the greatest black metal song ever written?" <laughs> and I'm just like. You know, fighting off being car sick, trying to smoke a cigarette, like going across the Bay Bridge, just painfully hungover, wearing sunglasses. I'm like, yeah, bro, hit me with it. <laughs> and he put on Where Dead Angels Lie. And I was like, wow, this really is an absolutely amazing fucking song. <laughs> and Storm of the Lights Bane is an unbelievably good black metal album. Like, this section is like, there's like, their songs are melodic and they're very technical and very guitar heavy and a lot of solos and stuff. And it's, it's really good shit. Um, that's definitely my, my favorite album they've done. They've done a lot of really good shit, but like storm of the lights made by dissection is like, I still listen to that fucking album even now. You know, it's like if you're just, you just need like a go-to thing to listen to like that album is still to this day. Like if I'm just driving around, I just want, I, I want to put something out, but I'm not sure what to put on. I'm just like, I'll put on dissection. It's fine. Uh, what else was really tight around that, that sort of Scandinavian flavor? Uh, let's see, there's Bethlehem, but I think Bethlehem they're from, I don't think they're from Norway, but, but they're, they were around the same time in that, that early nineties era of black metal. Bethlehem's rad. Immortal is great. So they have an album called, um, pure Holocaust. That, that fucking album is awesome. Um, emperor. Like I, you know, when I got into black metal, I listened to tons of emperor. Actually, when I went to Mexico and I got that rad abruptum shirt, I also got a, an emperor long sleeve for the album, uh, uh, Wrath of the Tyrant. And that was the first Emperor album. That's the first Emperor album. 
and that was the first album I heard of theirs. And what was it? I heard um, I Am the Black Wizards, which is like, you know, one of the more, like, one of the more famous Emperor songs. But that song, when I heard that, like, I was hooked. Like, Emperor's sick. And, um, anyways. <laughs> Enough about my reminiscing about music. Uh, let's get back to the documentary. Let me just sum all this up. Um, <laughs> uh, Until the Light Takes Us is it's a really cool documentary, and if you already, it does help if you know if you have some background on the black metal scene, especially in the '90s. So if you've ever seen like, let's see, there's another documentary called. Um, I think it's called Once Upon a Time in Norway. And I think that actually came out before Until the Light Takes Us. But um, it's I think some people in it are, I, don't, I guess depending on what version you see, it's like not subtitled and people are speaking Norwegian and some people are speaking English, whatever. And it doesn't quite have the production value of Until the Light Takes Us. Until the Light Takes Us is actually kind of nice to look at. Um, and actually... Going back to Vice, they did one called. Uh, they did like a, like a like a mini kind of like a short series of uh, of videos called. Uh, I think it was called True Norwegian Black Metal, and it has. Uh, um, they talked to the singer of uh, well, the singer of Gorgoroth. He's actually the second. He's not the original singer, but this guy named Gall, a little fucked up in the head, but you know that probably makes for good music in that genre so <laughs> but yeah i think that all came out around that like all the all this like weird black metal shit came around around that time and you know i definitely recommend see like if, if you're already into metal if you're into black metal maybe you've heard of this documentary but actually haven't seen it like check it out it's actually kind of fun and it's actually kind of relaxing documentary it's it's kind of chill the music in it is you know it's mostly pretty chill. Like there's black metal in the documentary, but it's, it's an interesting story. And maybe some of the things you've heard about the Norwegian black metal scene, like this will help kind of fill some gaps and, um, what you know about it, whatever. It's not the definitive, you know, expression of, you know, of what exactly happened around that time. But it's, it's a, it's a, you know, there's so much to fucking tell. You know, they just kind of picked a lane and just went for it. And um, I definitely recommend it. So, Until the Light Takes Us, 2009. You know what, dudes? I'm going to cut it off right there. Um, This is going to be the uh, last episode I'm going to do for uh, 2021. So, the next time... Uh, the next time... Uh, you hear my voice, it'll be 2022. And I don't know what the next year will bring, but I'll keep doing this show. And if you keep listening, I'll keep making episodes, okay? Deal? Deal. Cool. Well, this has uh, been the Skeleton Factory Podcast. I am Adam, rescuing your movie night. One movie at a time. I will catch you all next year. Bye-bye. <laughs>